The title tonight is, There is Power in Parenthood. And when I say that I'm going to begin to speak of that, one of the comments that I have gotten over the years, and I don't hear so much anymore, and certainly not from any of you, but people will say things like, like folks I used to work with, you know, you know, it's great that we have young pastors, but you really don't know what to tell anybody if you haven't lived a while. You, you can't tell anybody what to think about marriage or money or children if you haven't lived it for a while. And, you know, that is very sound human wisdom, isn't it? But there's a few things. First of all, 1 Timothy 4.12 says that I am not to allow anybody to despise me because of my youth. The Bible totally endorses young ministers of the gospel. And now why is that? Because the Bible is able to make us wise before we grow old. Isn't that wonderful? Through the wisdom and the testimony of Scripture, you are able to gain wisdom and to gain spiritual insight that normally you'd have to live a lifetime to accumulate. And so that's one reason among many why my job is to teach the Word and not to get up here and teach you all the things I've learned throughout the years because nobody wants to hear that, least of all me. But when we teach what the Scriptures say, there's power in that. And this is not just spiritual wisdom, it is ancient spiritual wisdom that we're passing on. So, let's talk about this. Parenthood. We all worry about our children, especially in difficult times. But if you read through history, everybody has thought they were living in difficult times for the most part. Nobody's ever thought, wow, we're really living in great times and there's nothing wrong we can look back at it and, and look at it proportionally and say, well, that was nothing compared to this, or this was nothing compared to that. And especially, I, I love to read history and American history. And you read the, the founding fathers, after they won the revolution, they, they were still talking like the world was about to end for like the next 25 years. And you're like, dude, this is, this is easy. The war is over. Y'all are living out the, the, the end of the story now. And that's kind of how we all think. But that affects how we think about our children, doesn't it? People will even say things like, is it right for us to have children in such terrible times when the, the climate is changing or in the political situation or if there's war on the horizon? Is it right for us to have children? And most people, I think, tend to, to grow past that. But the Bible does not only tell us that parenthood is a, is a good thing, but it tells us that godly parenthood, done God's way, raising children the way the Lord has taught us to, is a, is a world-changing act of resistance to the darkness in the world around us. As we raise godly families, that itself pushes back the darkness of the world, which is why it is such a shame that we minimize the role of family, because family can save the world, can't it? And if you don't believe it, we're going to have to read the story here tonight. Because we're going to see Moses born, placed in the Nile River, rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter, and then allowed to be, at least in the early years, raised by his own family. Such a small story. Compared to the things that are going to happen later, he's going to part the Red Sea. We're going to see fire from heaven on Mount Sinai. He's going to receive the law. He's going to hear the name of the Lord. This is such a small story. But isn't that the way it always begins? If it weren't for those small beginnings with our children, with our parents... None of the rest of it would happen. This is an absolutely necessary story to what God is going to do. And I hope if we get anything from this, it is that we ought not to discount our role as a mother or a father, whether that is a pastoral that we've had and our children have grown and moved on, whether you are currently, like myself, raising children in your own house, or whether you're looking forward to the day when you will do that. 
There is power in parenthood. So let's read these first two verses of the story and, and work our way through it in small little chunks here. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Let's remember our setting. The Hebrews are now slaves in Egypt. They are working the fields, they are making bricks, they are building cities. And not only that, but Pharaoh has ordered infanticide. He has ordered the death of the little baby boys that are living in Goshen among the Hebrews. And that's where we left it last time. He had asked the midwives to do it secretly. They refused, and finally he sent out his soldiers to do it. And we here zoom in on one family. We go from the palace to this one family. This man and this woman are both of the tribe of Levi. The only person who's going to receive a name in this section is Moses himself. It's trying to draw attention to him. So they are unnamed, but we know from Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, that their names of these men and, men and women are Amram, was the father. Am means people, like nation. And Ram means exalted or chief. So Amram, like Avram, which was Abraham's first name, right? Means exalted people. So you can see there's a, there's a bit of defiance in the name that this, this man's father gave to his slave-born son. That we are the exalted people. There's an act of faith there. And her name was Yocheved, or Yocheved which means the glory of the Lord. Yo or Yah is like Yahweh, which is Jehovah, and Chaved or Chavod means the glory of the Lord. So two very, very spiritual names. Exodus 6.20 gives us those names. And this is not their first child, as we will see. They had an older daughter named Miriam. They had a younger but older than this one, son named Aaron. But why we focus on this is because he was born about the time of Pharaoh's edict that all the, the male children had to be killed. So don't just breeze past that. Put yourself in that place, mom or dad, knowing that your newborn child is under sentence of death from Pharaoh himself and that he absolutely has the power to live it out. Yes, you're full of joy that your child has been born, but you also know that at any moment somebody could come breaking down that door to take your child and throw it to the crocodiles in the Nile River. Imagine every time that little baby cries, doing your best to silence it so that nobody hears, whether the soldiers patrolling the streets or even those that were among your own people who had been made overseers and were working with the Egyptians. I'd have that image in my mind of, you know how babies are. They cry, they scream, they're loud. They don't know what's going on. They're trying to keep the baby quiet. They're trying to maybe cover him with a blanket. Maybe he doesn't want to feed. He doesn't want to nurse at the time. They don't know what to do. And they know if this baby keeps crying loud, they're going to break down that door. They're going to kill him, and they might kill us too. Maybe the baby's crying. Now little Aaron, who's only two or three this time, he starts crying too. They've got to be harsh with him to get him to be quiet. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's just a little boy. They're in the dead of night trying to save this little baby. But it's day to day. They have no long-term plan. What are they going to do? But they say, it says that he saw that it was a fine child. This is how the ESV translates it. The word for fine is tov. It just means good. Very, very common word. That it was a good child. And that kind of reads awkwardly in English, so it's translated in various ways. So for example, in the Greek translation, which is called the Septuagint, they translated it with the Hebrew word beautiful. 
Right? He was a beautiful baby boy. We all say that. Even with our little boy, that's a beautiful baby boy. And then Hebrews, or yeah, Hebrews 11.23, it also calls him a beautiful child, probably quoting from the Greek as well. But I think that something you ought to grasp, however you translate it in order to make the English flow is fine. I think you ought to grasp what we saw from Genesis chapter 1, that the Lord made the world and saw that it was good. This is the exact same language here. This baby was born and they saw that he was good. This is a good child. So there's that, that echo to the fatherhood of God here. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I love that. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Their parental love made them brave. The world is a hard place and you are bringing a baby into a hard place. It's full of sin. It's full of corruption and torture and war and sickness and everything else. But God has instituted the family as the, the normal, basic unit of survival. How are we going to get through all this? Well, God gave us families. We're not just churned out and, and turned it loose to be on our own. God gave us the family, which is why I find it so strange that people will say things like, do we really need parents? Do we really need fathers and mothers? Do we really need brothers and sisters? Which you would think that after so many years across cultures of people having families, mother, father, child, that we wouldn't mess with something like that so readily. But let's take a look at what the Bible has to say. What is the purpose of parenthood, of the family? Why have children at all? Well, let's look at this. Number one, the Bible gives us five reasons that you can take notes on. Number one is the continuation of humanity. God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, after he created them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This goes all the way back to the reason God made the world in the first place. God made this world to fill with people. God did not intend there to be a world that was just animals or just plants or just nothing. He wanted it to be filled with people. And if you've ever had that, and most of us I'm sure have, that desire in your heart to have children of your own, you understand that. That's the same heart that God has for us. He wants the world to continue. He wants there to continue to be generations to be constantly filling the world, subduing it, making something of it. Very, very basic, that there will be more people. That's why we have children. Number two, godly offspring. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, when he's giving prohibitions about divorce, he says, why do we get married in the first place? He says, because God was seeking godly offspring. He says, that is why God sanctifies and fills marriages with the Spirit, because he wants godly offspring. So not just lots of people, but people who are going to bear the image of God well, who are going to be salt and light in the darkness. That God intends the family to be the means by which we raise people that go out into the world and preserve it. That's what salt does, right? It preserves the world. That when there's injustice, when there's pain, when there's a situation that this generation doesn't quite know how to fix, God says, don't worry, there's another one coming up. And there's this continual refreshing presence of the next generation that God wants us to have. Now, if the family falls apart and we're not raising them according to the training and admonition of the Lord, the next generation can come and undo what was done before. Which is why God always maintains his remnant. He says, I want my people and their kids to be that constant voice of conscience in the world. So godly offspring. Now those are very big picture things. Let's look at number three. Family intimacy. To have people that you can love and then who are going to love you no matter what. 
Ecclesiastes 9.9, he's giving a long list of all the things that are wrong with the world. But in Ecclesiastes 9, he says, here's something that's good. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And by extension, the children too. Family love cannot be replaced. It's an anchor for life. And in every parent in here, you, you know this, that when you have children, your heart just expands and makes room for them. I remember when Micah was born, my firstborn son, I'd always said I wanted a lot of kids. And I found myself saying when he was born, you know, if this was all we had, I really think I'd be all right. Because I love him so much and I love my wife. And of course, we had another child. And as soon as he was born, I couldn't imagine life without him. It's like, wow, why did I ever think that I'd be all right with just one? And then God gave us a daughter. I'm like, well, if it was only boys around here, what would we be doing? Yeah, as, as your family grows and as you, are, you get older and as life moves on, that, that is an anchor for you. And I find it amazing that the world is trying to sit, tell two things simultaneously. Number one, don't let your family run your life and push you around. And you, it's really about focusing on your friends. That's the second thing, that your friends are always there for you and they'll never leave you. And you've got to stand by them no matter what. And it's, it's backwards. You're yes, love your friends. There's, there's a friend that sticks closer than the brother, the Bible says. But it is a higher love for your family because you did not choose them. You, you can't just say no thanks. If you have, you have a friend and you guys drift apart, you can just drift apart. I'm sad, but it's, you know, there you go. But family is always there, and there's a higher love to somebody that you can't get rid of that you choose to love anyway. And there's something wonderful about coming home and having children say, Daddy's home. That's something that, that the Lord loves, and the Lord wants us to experience too. Which is bringing us to number four, the full range of human experience. Why to have children? Because God's like, there's a lot to life, and I want you to experience it all. Psalm 127 says that children are a blessing from the Lord. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior, and blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Love that psalm. Your life is fuller when you've been a father, a son, a grandfather, and so on. And you could apply that, of course, to, to women as well. That the more you experience of life, the, the more you, you understand of life. And the wiser you become. And the more great, wonderful memories you have. And the Lord is like, you should have a family because you get to experience all that. Isn't that wonderful? And number five is the knowledge of God. Romans 8.16, one among many passages, says that we are children of God. You learn things about God being a father or a mother that you would not learn otherwise. You might know them, but you finally understand them. And the way you treat your kids, and you think, wow, as much as I love that kid when he does the wrong thing, and I'm still there to love on him and welcome him back, is that how God feels about me? You learn things about God when you have a family. So to take on the role of a parent is to learn more about God by experience and, and just by default. And of course, the Bible makes very clear that, that you do not lose anything. You're not somehow immoral if you choose not to be married or not to have children. But that should not allow us to discount the wonderful, natural goodness of having a family and specifically raising children. As we see here, it calls forth the best of you. We've all seen somebody that was just wild and crazy. All of a sudden, they've got a daughter now. And it's like, wow, nothing could shape that boy up. And yet, there he goes. He's off to work. <laughs> I couldn't get him to wear a tie no matter what. But now there's, a, now there's a little girl around. Now he's taking things seriously. 
calls forth the best of you, which is what's happening here. This man and this woman are not afraid of the king, not because they're such brave people, but because they love that little baby so much, and it is forcing them to do brave things. Verse 3 here, verses 3 and 4. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. As the baby grew, it became impossible to hide him in the house. Three-month-old babies are not hidden very well, you may have noticed. But that would have been a fearful thing. And she, she is the, the lead character in this story. Probably what was happening is her husband was out working the fields, working in the brickyards. And she's the one either home with the baby all day, or maybe her husband has been taken away and, and she's the one that's got to make the decisions here. Either way, she takes center stage here. She cannot hide the baby anymore. And so it says she makes a basket. And that word for basket in Hebrew is teva. And it's the same word we see in Genesis chapter 6 when God tells Noah, build yourself a teva, build an ark. It actually just means box. But of course, you shouldn't think of a box in the river. She built it with bulrushes. This is the papyrus reed, of course, that, that grows. There's a picture of it there for you to look at. She placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, which is, of course, the Nile River because we are in Egypt. I want to I correct something here. Now, we, we grow up with certain images and pictures in our minds of how the Bible stories played out, and they make for great movies. We've got to make sure we come back to the text and, and get that right first. Moses was not set adrift in the river. That is not what it says. She did not just, you know, like a sailboat and say, I hope this works out for you. It looks great in the movies. What it says is she hid him among the, the bulrushes, among the papyrus reeds. So picture her putting him in a place where, first of all, he's not going to float away. Secondly, the crocodiles or whatever are not going to come and get him. And the Egyptians are certainly not going to find him. We've also got Miriam in verse 4 watching and helping. I'm probably told to not be obvious about it. It's like you play by the river, but you play close by those reeds so that you can check and make sure if anything happens, you can step in. And of course, something is going to happen. This is a very clever way to obey Pharaoh technically. Well, I put him in the river. I just happened to get him out every night when we came back from work and also preserve the child. But this is still risky. I mean, this is not without its dangers, of course. But I, I think it's, it's perfectly fine to be looking at a movie and they put it some way. It's more dramatic because you're watching a drama, right? But, you know, I've always been bothered by that. Like, so she just says, I hope it works out for me. No, no, no. She's very carefully and deliberately putting him in a place where she can find him again. The world is full of dangers, as we've said. And parenthood is, among many other things, training your children to meet and face those dangers. Moses was able to be at home for three months, but that is no longer safe. So now he's out in the river in a basket. And if we can extrapolate this out a little bit, there are many, many of those little stages and transitions that happen as you are raising children. Where this level of safety and boundary was fine, but now it is time to allow them to go a little bit farther. I'm a little less comfortable with it. I'm a little more bothered by it. I'm less hands-on with it, but it must happen. Whether that's the first time you say, yes, dear, you can go out and play in the yard by yourself. Or yes, you can ride your bike around the corner and go, go to your friend's house. Or yep, off you go to school. I just put my second son on, on the school bus for the first time this morning and 
You know, he barely made it up the steps, and his backpack hung down to, like, his knees. And, but, you know, off he goes. Or as they get older, send them off to go get a job, watching them go on a date for the first time, watching them get married. All of these things begin when they're very little and goes all the way up. We must be able to place them in God's good hands. And it is our job as parents to make sure we don't miss the handoff and allow them and help them and push them to take the next step. I'll give you an example. There, when I was in high school, I ran track for one season, and we had a very, very good 4x200 relay team. So in an indoor track, which is half of an outdoor track, it was just one lap, very fast race. And our, our team was very good. They ended up winning, I think, the state championship for it. And I was it offered the job to be on the second 4x100 relay team. And I'm like, all right, this is cool. I knew I wasn't going to be able to run with these guys. They, they were better than anybody else. And so what we had to do, though, we had to have an official time to see if we could actually race in the race. And they say, ready, set, go. And they run. And our first guy was right there with the first guy on the, on the all-state team. And then they hand off to the next guy, which was me. And I didn't pass him. I didn't go, you know, way past him. But I stuck with him the whole time. And I'm real excited. And I hand off the baton to the next guy. He gets halfway around, and he's losing ground, but not much. And he drops the baton. Not on the handoff. He just dropped the baton. Goes and picks it up and brings it around. And, of course, by that time, they ended up blowing us out. And I remember being so angry at my coach because he didn't allow us to rerun the race. Because I was like, we weren't going to win, but we weren't going to get blown out like that. And if these guys are the best in this state and we're able to run right with them, then we should at least have a chance. But that didn't happen. That's an awful lot like life, isn't it? You don't get to do it over. And you've got to make sure that as you are raising your children, when it comes time to take that step, that you're able to help them make the relay, that they're able to get to the next leg. If you miss the handoff, you might not get it back. You can't hold on to your kids forever. And I will say this, you fail to train your children to leave you eventually, you've failed as a parent. Because your job is not to have them stay with you forever. And often what happens is they're 25 and now we're upset that they're still here. But the question goes, well, wait a minute. We should have taught her this 10 years ago. Right. And I would have, uh, when I was a youth pastor, this would happen where dads or moms would be upset with their 18 or 19-year-old son. And, and I wouldn't, you know, be angry about it. But they're like, well, he doesn't want to leave. And it's like, well, he's never had to. He's never had to step out. You've, you've allowed him to stay back farther than he should have. So it's time for you to start nudging and pushing and say, off you go, my friend. It's time to go out and make something of your life. Really, it's a matter of do you trust the Lord or not? Do you trust the Lord to carry them over the flood and the ark that he's going to build for them? Matthew 7, 11, and we'll come back to this point, but Matthew 7, 11 says, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Well, they're not going to take care of them like I would. No, but the Lord will. The Lord's an even better father, better mother than you are. Life is coming for your kids like it came for you. So don't hide them. Prepare them and release them. Do it in small little stages, right? We're not getting rid of the baby, but he can't stay in this house hidden all the time because it's too dangerous. It's just as dangerous to prevent your children from growing up than it is to allow that wailing baby to stay where the soldiers can find him. But well, you can see they're doing everything they can to keep this baby safe. And I bet you they're taking it day by day. They didn't have a long-term plan here. They're just like, I, 
All I can think right now is we'll hide him and we'll think of something. That's kind of what parenting is, isn't it? We'll get through today and we'll think of something tomorrow. That's all right. Well, verse 5 and 6. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now you have two scenarios here. I'm inclined to pick the second one, but I think the first one is just as fine too. Either Yahaved and her husband thought we'll put him somewhere where we know they will, somebody will be passing by and hopefully they'll take care of the baby. Or this is their worst nightmare. I'm inclined to think it's that one. That they would put the baby among the reeds while maybe Yahaved went about her duties and her work. And then when nightfall came, Miriam would sneak him back. And first thing in the morning, out he goes again where they can't find him. But except this time, here comes an Egyptian. Not just an Egyptian. Pharaoh's daughter. <laughs> it's a frightening thing, isn't it? She comes to bathe in the Nile, which was, of course, their sacred river. And there have been various attempts to identify this, this princess here. There are some who say her name was Hatshepsut, who was the queen regent for a while at this time. There was uh, Maris was another name from Hebrew tradition. But it's really, there's no way we can tell. Pharaoh's had a lot of wives and a lot of daughters. Ramesses II, who was one of the possible pharaohs at this time, had 60 daughters. So the fact that it does not identify her, it's probably not some famous one that will have been remembered in Egyptian history. This is probably just one among many. And they open up this little ark to see this crying little boy. How does she know he was a Hebrew? Well, he was probably circumcised, which would have been a giveaway. Also probably had, had the, the clothing he was in, or maybe the thing was crudely made, not, not carved like the Egyptian would have been. And, and she pities him. And good for her for pitying him. She should have. Because with, with great force, the irony of bathing in a sacred river where a few miles up the road they were throwing baby boys in to drown is brought home to her in an instant. We're going to go bathe in the sacred river god. Meanwhile, up there, they're throwing children in. She hadn't considered that. She hadn't thought about that. She hadn't had to. But now she puts two and two together. This is a little baby that is being hidden from the soldiers who are coming to kill this little crying baby. And so again, the best parental instincts of a mother bring a sharp rebuke to the anti-parental edict of Pharaoh. Isn't it true that the nature of man very often stands in judgment of the actions of man? Yes, the Lord comes and, and sends prophets, but very often just the natural God-given conscience and humanity will cause you to just have revulsion for the things that we do to one another. When the soldiers first stumbled upon the concentration camps and would throw up these battle-hardened soldiers that couldn't stand to see what had been done to somebody else. But of course, there were, these were men that had done this to other men. It's much easier, though, to justify sin when we don't see it lived out in front of us or we don't see the consequences of it. Much easier to, easier to say, well, I suppose something had to be done about those Hebrews, and it really is a shame. But now she comes across a live, crying little baby boy, obviously hidden there by a mother, a woman just like her, and her heart is filled with pity. 
there's an obvious contemporary parallel that I want to make here, and this is not a pleasant subject, but this is the place in Scripture to discuss it. The most recent data is from 2018 that America, United States, is averaging 189 abortions for every 1,000 live births. For every 1,000 babies that are born in the hospital, there were 189 that were aborted. In 2018, there were 619,591 babies aborted. It's about as many as were killed in the Civil War in one year. It should go without saying, but we must say it. Destroying life in the womb is an abominable sin before the Lord. Now, people want to come and say, well, abortion isn't in the Bible. Well, as we have it, it was not invented yet. However, the, the same thing is discussed. Leviticus 18.21, the Lord told the children of Israel, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. This is the prohibition against human sacrifice, and there are other places that discuss it. In Jeremiah 32.35, the Lord condemns the people, saying, They build the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. That's a remarkable phrase. God goes, it didn't even enter into my mind that you would do something like that. Now, who is this God we're talking about? This is the God Molech. Molech was a God that was worshipped among the Ammonites, but there were other parallel gods among the different tribes and this was a God where it says in the literal Hebrew that they would make their children pass through the fire. And there's an illustration here where his arms would be outstretched. We know this from some contemporary accounts where you would heat up the altar inside the statue and place the baby upon the, the scalding hot arms of the statue. And then on the right, we actually have a, a statue, an idol of the god Moloch. And as I said, there were various iterations of it. There were some versions that we've discovered where there would be a, a giant torso of the body and there would be little small ovens cut into the body where you would place the children. And they would play loud music and it was wailing and, and loud screaming in order to drown out the sound of the dying children. 2 Kings 21.6 says that Manasseh, the king of Israel, had his son pass through the fire. And this was one of the justifications that God gave to Joshua for the conquest of the land of Israel. People say, how dare God wipe out entire nations? And the Lord goes, they're taking their little children and setting them on fire in the name of their God. God formed us in the womb, the Bible says. Psalm 139.13 says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah 1.5, God tells Jeremiah, he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The Lord begins the process of creation, as we call procreation, well before we are even aware that it's going on. Jeremiah had an identity. David says similar things. He had an identity, a soul, before he was even born. Little baby John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit in the womb and recognized Jesus and Mary coming. There is no biblical justification for this whatsoever. But there's a, a broader problem, I think, here. How are all these mothers and fathers willing to destroy their children? This is not unique to us either. This has happened around the world. There's a word that the New Testament uses for this. We just read it in Romans 1.31. The word is astorgos in Greek. The ESV translates it as heartless. 
It's a very literal translation, but the Old King James, I love the way they put this. It's a little more expanded to help you get the sense, but it says, without natural affection. What is more natural? What affection is more natural than that of a mother for her child? Consider how, how elated mothers are when they find out they're pregnant. Naming the baby, singing to the baby, showing off the little pictures. You can't even tell what it is, but letting everybody know about it. But then you consider a mother who says, we've got to get rid of this. Or a father who is going to push his girlfriend or his wife to do something like that. And I don't even want to address the strange exceptions to this because people will always bring things out. What about someone who was raped and, and, and now they're pregnant? First of all, I know three very dear friends of mine who were rape babies that were then adopted and are now living wonderfully happy lives. So I don't particularly like that argument, first of all. What about when the life of the mother is in danger? That's a tragic thing that I don't know that I'm going to stand up here and say anything about. But they say that, that those two things account for less than 1% of that 619,000 abortions. So we can just leave that aside. Let's just leave that alone. Let's talk about the 600,000 people that are doing it because their career is being threatened or because they're young and they're free and they don't want to stop doing what they're doing. Or because it's an embarrassment to their parents and their parents are making them go. That happens all the time. Church people do that. If people find out that you're pregnant, that's going to reflect badly on us. So go and kill your baby. Talk about hypocrisy. We were talking about that on Sunday. Now, sometimes it is. It's fear and necessity. And sometimes people would say, I'm 40 years old now. I've got a family. Then the finances aren't good. And if I have another child, I don't know how I'm going to take care of it. Yeah, that's hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. But I will say that in most cases that I know of, these are people who are unwilling to leave behind their childhood. They're unwilling to leave behind the idea of having co no consequences to the life they're living. They want to live life on their own terms. I want to have sex, but I don't want to have children. I had a great man in my life, and he might have been a coach of mine, actually, but I remember him saying this very, very plainly. He said, if you're going to do the grown-up thing... You better be prepared to take on grown-up responsibility. Well, I'm not ready. He says, well, I told you you weren't ready before this and you didn't listen. This is most of it. We want to have no consequences, but there is no lack of consequence to these things. The Romans used to do this. They would expose their children. They had disposal places for your children that you didn't want. Horrific. Oh, the enlightened Roman Empire, the foundation of Western civilization, used to take their babies and dump them in a drop-off box, like you drop off shoes for the goodwill. So you know what started happening? Christians started going around to these places and taking the babies and raising them. And Christians gained a reputation that if you don't want your baby, you drop it off at the church and they'll take it. That's where that trope comes from, of dropping off your baby at the monastery and knocking and running away. Because Christians had a reputation, we'll take your children. Don't kill the baby. If you don't want it, let us raise it for you. This is where orphanages came from. Because when you're forced to see a dying child, your heart wells up with pity. Like this woman here. She sees this little baby boy. And she's probably thinking to herself, could I take this baby right now and throw him into the river? She's thinking, I couldn't possibly do it. And so she thinks to herself, how could I condone that happening to somebody else? 
which is why you may know this. I forget exactly what the statistic is, but it is remarkably high that if a woman sees an ultrasound of her baby, the likelihood of her going through with an abortion plummets, which is why some people say things like, we shouldn't allow them to see, to which I say, if we're allowing them to make a choice, why not allow them to make an informed choice? There's wickedness behind that. I truly believe there's deception and wickedness behind that. We insist on euphemisms. And I, 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 you know what? I don't feel great about those folks that want to force you to look at butchered pictures of aborted babies. I, I don't know if I'm with that. But I will say this. If this is just like getting a tumor removed, why do people freak out about that? That's not fair. You shouldn't have to show it. That's disgusting. That's filthy. Why? Because they're being forced to find a baby in the river after they said you should be allowed to throw them into the river. We know what's right. Well, you've got to either control yourself beforehand or take responsibility afterwards. And people say things like, well, Christians just want you to not, ha not have the abortion. They don't care about what happens afterwards. That is not true. Don't let anybody tell you that. Christians adopt more babies and foster more children than anybody else combined. I love the story of when Jerry Falwell, who is the, the pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, big anti-abortion activist pastor, and they would throw that at him. All you care about is the baby. You don't care about the mom. So he started what's called the Liberty Godparent Home. He says, you know what? Fine, we'll do this. And now they take in mothers that were going to have abortions but are not anymore, and they help the mom find a place to place the child and help her get a job and all these things. That's what Christians do. We love you so much. And not only that, we don't want you to spend your whole life saddled with the guilt of this. It's better to have financial difficulty than to have that moral weight upon your soul for the rest of your life. And not just the moms, by the way. The dads, too. Not only do they feel guilty, but they feel like they were totally boxed out of this decision. That was my little baby boy. And they didn't even let me have a say in this. Her mom kept me out. Her dad kept me out. They wouldn't let me go into the clinic with her to listen. Because it wasn't my decision. And now that man is stuck with that for the rest of his life. But you know what I will say? That like Pharaoh's daughter here who saw this and her heart was filled with pity and her conscience was struck. The Lord offers grace for all things. And we've got to remember this as Christians too. We should never let anybody think that they cannot come to the Lord for forgiveness for anything doesn't matter if you've had an abortion or if your wife has or if you were put in a situation where this had to happen. And there's a whole mess of sin swallowed up in that. There's forgiveness. Isaiah 1.18, the Lord says, Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God can forgive you in Christ Jesus. And we as Christians have to show pity to them as well. Jesus didn't just love the people that were hurt by sin. He loved the perpetrators of the sin too. And his love that he showed caused these prostitutes and tax collectors and violent revolutionaries to break down and weep and say, Lord, tell me what to do. So we stand strong on this issue. We support those who are fighting this fight. We're going to continue to lead the way, loving people. Providing a place where any mother, any father... Any children that are caught in any kind of situation, we're here to help and here to love them. I hope we live to see the end of this. We get all kinds of abuse for what the Bible teaches us about this, but we've got to have enough love to endure the abuse from other people. Amen? Amen. Well, let's, let's move on. Verse 7. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Here's Miriam. She's not given a name yet, but that's her name. We're going to read a song later on that she wrote in this book. But she, she's a plucky little thing. I like her. She sees her little baby brother picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. She's probably listening to what's going on, probably thinking, what do I do if they try to, if they try to do something, if they try to hurt him? And she hears her saying, look at him. And, and the, you, you know, it's a bunch of young women gathered together. Look at him. He's so beautiful. He's so sweet. We can't, what are we going to do about him, though? We can't just take him back. And you can hear her sloshing through the water, coming out, hey, hey, do you want me to go find someone to, to nurse the baby for you? It could be that Yochaved was exactly that. She could have been a wet nurse. That was her profession. We don't know. But she says, hey, I know somebody that can take care of that baby for you. <laughs> and she sets up this deal where her mother gets to keep Moses for a time, where she gets to raise her little boy for those first couple of years and get paid for it. How about that? The Lord's going to take good care of him. And not only that, but after this, he's going to get to go live in Pharaoh's own house. He's not going to have to live life as a slave. He's going to live life as a prince. Now, it's not included, but I, I, am, I am sure that Yochaved and the princess spoke and understood one another here. I don't think there was as much mystery, again, as the movies like to try to make it out. You know, all of a sudden, this young Hebrew girl springs out of nowhere to try to take her. I'm sure they knew what was up, right? I just happen to know a woman who is ready to nurse this baby for you. It's like, oh, really? You do? Anybody you know? Oh, no, no one in particular, but I'm sure I can find one. I'm sure they understood one another. I'm sure they had interaction with one another. I doubt this woman said, yeah, call me in four years and I'll take him back. There probably were visits that happened. And meanwhile, all these other parents who are scared to death for their children, although, as I said, this probably did not happen repeatedly. This probably was something that happened for a short time. But now they can have their baby and not be nervous about it anymore. God sovereignly working this out, honoring the faith and the courage of this family. But let's also acknowledge the sorrow that his mother would have had. She didn't know what was going to happen, and I'm sure she was relieved to hear this, but now little Moses is walking, and he's smiling, and he's saying, Mama, and she knows that before too long she's going to have to give him to somebody else, and he's going to call her Mama. And she might not see him as much anymore. But he's not going to be raised as a Hebrew. He's not going to grow out the big, long beard that his father's had. He's going to be shaved. He's going to be bald. He's going to have the makeup on that they would wear. And she would have probably had a very hard time as the time got closer and closer. This is the same sorrow that every parent experiences. That you love the current stage that you're in. And you really are desperate to go to the next one. But at the same time, you're sorrowful because you see the future just rushing in. I'll never forget this as a funny little story that when Micah was, was really little, he got his bottom teeth very quickly. And it was so funny because he would smile at these teeth and he didn't have any top teeth. And so I tell him, you're not allowed to grow any, any upper teeth. No, no top teeth, no more teeth. That was just kind of you know, a little joke. And finally, of course, he gets his teeth. And I would see him and I'd be like, didn't I tell you you couldn't have any more teeth? And, you know, because I loved it when he didn't have that. But, of course, you want to see him grow up. And you'll love it when they babble and you can't understand it. But you also want to be able to talk to them and hear what they have to say. And, yeah, it's fun watching them go to school and go to kindergarten. And it's great. But you also are looking for what are they going to do with their life? What are they going to be? Who are they going to marry? 
But then you think about that and you look around and like, I remember when they were this little. I remember those days. And it's hard. It's one of the sorrowful things of being a parent. It's very bittersweet. But we can't, as I said before, allow that to make us reluctant to embrace the next season. Whether that is parenthood itself. Oh, I just love being single so much. I love being married without kids so much. I don't want to get to the next thing. I just, again, without being pushy, just saying, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Oh, but I'm going to leave all this behind. Yeah, but you're going to gain something else. The next stage of life is just as good as the one you're leaving. And the one after that will be just as good too. It's like high school. Maybe you weren't like this, but you can follow my illustration anyway. I loved high school. Everybody likes to write about how awful it was and you know, I was miserable all the time. I was not. I loved every minute of it. I loved my friends. I loved my classes. I liked my job well enough, you know, and I had a car and it was great. But then graduation came around and that's all I wanted to do was graduate. And now I look back on it and I'm like, man. And we were, Catelyn and I were reading this book that has you like ask each other questions to, to get to know each other a little better. One of them was, would you do high school again? And I said, oh, I'd totally do high school again. I said, I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> I, wouldn't go, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go and try and relive and recapture those days, but I loved it. And it's the same thing with your, the early days of your marriage. And we talk about how much we loved dating each other and just getting to know each other. But we'll also say, but I want to do it again. <laughs> That's kind of what life is. There's always something to enjoy and love. And you want to get to the next thing, but then you move on. And you're like, oh, I don't know that I really appreciated how wonderful it was at the time. The Bible is so much more sensible about life than we are. The value of what happens after you turn 25, that there's more to life than that, you know. Proverbs 20, 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. He's not trying to say one is lesser or worse than the other. He's saying there's glory to being a young man. There's also glory to being an old man and every stage in between. As Christians, we accept that life is short, life is full of trouble, but like Ecclesiastes 9 said, we take joy in every moment we can, especially with our children, with all the bittersweetness that parenthood brings. And once again, if you're unwilling to prepare them for the next stage, it's only going to cause trouble. I just want to say to you guys, embrace every role that you have to play and live it to the fullest. God himself is God the Father and God the Son. It's good to be the son. It's good to be the father. It's good to be the grandfather or the mother. And this goes far beyond parenting, doesn't it? Don't pine away for the past. Don't pine for the future. Don't even pine for the present. I want to keep everything just the way it is because I like it right now. Just keep moving and the Lord is going to make it all great. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. That's that pain I'm talking about. But she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. I want to make a quick note. In chapter 1 and in chapter 2, Pharaoh is very concerned to make sure that the young men are eradicated, yet it is the women that keep thwarting Pharaoh. It's the midwives first, then it's Yochaved and Miriam and his own daughter. Right? The, the Bible does not try to minimize the role of anybody. It shows he's being foolish for not considering the women around him. Well, after three to four years, which is how long they would wean, it's not just not, is the baby not nursing any longer, but is he more or less able to, to handle himself, right? He doesn't need a constant mother's attention. He's brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and he's given the name Moses. 
Now this, as she said, is because I drew him out of the water. Now we got two etymologies for his name here. The name Mose is the Egyptian word for sun. You see that Mos in a lot of Egyptian names. There are pharaohs named Akmos and Tutmos, and even the name Ramesses is the same consonants, M-S. The vowels are very interchangeable in these Semitic languages. So related to the word for sun. Now in Hebrew, the word Moshe, so Mose and Moshe, means the one who draws out, he who draws out. And this is what she's calling attention to here. Now, very liberal scholars want to come in and say, the author clearly didn't know the Egyptian meaning of this name. It's like, that, that's a very silly thing to say. You didn't know about it until five minutes ago, and now you're coming after the, the writers of Scripture here. I don't see any reason why there couldn't be a dual meaning here. That they're talking, and maybe Yahweh and Pharaoh's daughter are speaking, and what, what names do you like? Well, you know, I've, I've always loved the name Mose. Huh? That's kind of like our word for Moshe. What does that mean? Well, it means to draw out. Oh, that's perfect! That way it's a little Egyptian, it's a little Hebrew, and everybody gets to you know, name the baby their way. Why, you know, sometimes it's like you need just a little imagination to get over these apparent <laughs> hurdles that the text throws in your way. But isn't it wonderful that he indeed is going to be the one who's going to draw his people out of that land through the water, just as he was? And in fact, the language is going to describe the Sea of Reeds, the part of the Red Sea. So not the big, vast expanse of water, but the marshy expanse to the north of that. So just as Moses himself was placed in the marshy reeds and drawn out, so he's going to do the same for his people. A lot of prophecy going on here. Very exciting. But also this, God is the one who draws us out, isn't he? He's the one that listens to our plaintive cries when we're stuck and we're crying and we're in danger. Psalm 18, 16 says, he sent from on high, he took me, and he drew me out of many waters. You ever go through something like that? Where you were drowning, and the Lord came and pulled you out? Who really was looking after Moses here? Was it the Lord? Of course. Well, his name is not given, but you know what? Isn't that the way life goes? God doesn't always announce himself. That this is me, and I'm doing this. You just look back at it later, and you go, that was all God. That had to have been all God. Sometimes you don't even recognize. You just tell the story to somebody else, and they go, it's like God is looking out for you. And you go, I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah. God is still moving all the while through this. This is the main thing to understand. If we're talking about parenthood, God is the good father of our children. We can trust him. If you're afraid and you're nervous for your children, which is like all of us, right? The best thing you can do is bring them to the Lord. Because the Lord himself had a son who was born in danger, forced to flee to Egypt when Herod tried to kill him. He too passed through the waters of the Jordan and into the wilderness and came back to teach us a new law of grace. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was the perfect high priest. He was the prophet like Moses that had been prophesied. And he makes intercession for us before his good, good father. And that Lord, our God is not just the father of Jesus. He's not just the father of our kids. He's the father of you too. Romans 8, I'm going to read this whole passage. I referenced it before, but I'm going to read the whole thing. It says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
If you ever want to have some fun, take that passage and see how many parallels to the story of Moses you can find. God is a better parent than you. Amen? Your main job is to put your children into his hands. You might have a lot of questions, but if you get that right, the Lord will take care of the rest. And there's so much more, of course, that we can say about family and parenthood and children, but the big point tonight is that it matters, that it's a good thing. Family, children, grandchildren, it matters. This is how God fills the world with godly people. This is how he teaches us wisdom, how he fulfills us in our lives. It's also how we come to know him in miraculous new ways. So don't be afraid to step in to the next stage of your life. I want to show you a picture here, and this is of my family. But this is me and my father and my grandfather and my firstborn son. And we took this picture because we all have the same first name. We all are Guy Warner. And what's remarkable about this picture is you can see the span of the generations there. My grandfather was born in 1940, my father in 1967, I was born in 1991, and Micah was born in 2014. It's almost 100 years of Guy Warner right there. And what I love about this is you've got the little boy, you've got the young man, you've got the older man, and you've got the old man. And all of it's good. It's all good. One is not better than another. All of them are desirable. All of them will be memorable. All of them have their glory and their splendor. So don't try to stop the clock on your life. Try to dress the way you did when you were 21 or 15. Don't try to grow up too fast. And you miss parts of your life. And then you get older and you feel like you didn't have a youth. You feel like you missed having young children because you weren't around, you were working or whatever it was. Don't miss the relay at the end and you thought, these teenagers, I just can't handle them, so I'm just going to kind of disconnect. You'll miss it. <coughs> and try not to let your children stop the clock on their lives either. It might have to be with tears in your eyes, but we've always got to be pushing them forward. And have mercy and pity on the children around you whose families are broken and shattered. Love them with all your heart. Have an extra level of grace and pity for them. The church can be that for those families. But remember that the most important truth here is that God is our good father. He's our example, but he's also our refuge and our help. Sometimes we think that God is just there to judge us. That's not true. He's also there to help us and lead us through. If we want to change the world, you've got to begin in your family. Because there's power in parenthood that no darkness can extinguish.